welcome again to another episode of Strange Brow Radio. I'm your host, Tobe Johnson. It is a dark and dreary January day here when I did this episode. Today's guest is going to be live from the Axe and Fiddle Pub, Linda Godfrey of the Beast of Bray Road. I believe the other book is A Monsters Among Us. You may want to check her out. I think Amazon would be your place for that. But more on Linda here in a second. As always, I want to thank our sponsor, Feral, by Aaron at Etsy.com. Spirit drums, rattles, smudge sticks. You can go on to Etsy, type in Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N, and find all her beautiful stuff, locally resourced, Native American-inspired, museum-quality spirit tools. Feral by Aaron at Etsy. All right, as I said, coming up here in a minute, live, pre-recorded in Cottage Grove, Oregon, Linda Godfrey and the case for the dog man. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. As I said, our guest today is Linda Godfrey, author The Beast of Bray Road, experiencer as well, and we'll get into some of that with her. She was nice enough to be a part of our Halloween costume party. I guess it was a contest, too, because she was a judge, and it was a werewolf-themed costume party. She had a good sense of humor about it. I think uh, she made her ruling quite fair on who ended up winning that final costume party. Consequently, we have another one coming up this October as well, 2019, and that one is our mummy costume party. But I don't think Linda's going to fit the bill for judging that particular contest. But I'll be fair and say that uh, my ruling on Linda Godfrey is she's an amazing researcher, and we are lucky enough to have her and record this interview. I give to you Linda Godfrey, live from the Axe and Fiddle. Everybody about your experience with this and how you got started with it. And, um, you know, as far as witnesses you've interviewed, and I'll let you kind of take the, the wheel here, Linda. Oh, thanks. Well, there have been a lot of witnesses over many years. I think it's 26 years now since this thing first came out. And the reason I was involved was that um, I had just become a newspaper reporter in my hometown of Elkhorn and found out that people around town were saying there was something that they called a werewolf, just for lack of a better term. I don't know that any of them really thought it was a werewolf, but it looked like your mental image of a werewolf. It stood upright. It had a head like a German shepherd, pointed ears on top of the head, a muzzle walked on its toe toe pads like um, all canines do. And it wasn't hurting people, but it was scaring them. You know, it would jump out of the corn at them, run around um, till they were really just um, frightened and then run off into the corn or whatever cover was, was near there. And I was mildly interested at first. And then it just happened that I was working with the county animal control officer on a different sort of story. And I said, hey, have you heard about this thing people are saying they're seeing out on Bray Road. Bray Road, I should add, is maybe a three to four mile long road um, 
leads out of town toward a highway. It's, it's also a shortcut to the hospital. It really isn't like a spooky woods type of place. You know, it's open for the most part, lots of family farms. Um, so, you know, it seemed like an unlikely place. And I asked him if he, when I asked him if he had heard of it, he opened his drawer, pulled out a file folder marked werewolf, much to my shock and surprise. And he said, oh, you mean this? And he opened it up. And sure enough, there were reports and contact information from people who had been calling him because he's the animal, the county officer on that beat and saying, I saw this thing. That's what they were all, they didn't know what to call it. They said, if there was such a thing as a werewolf, this would be it. And then they described, you know, pretty much the same thing stood um, five and a half to almost seven feet tall, depending on its posture it was usually a little bit soup, but running on its hind legs. It could go between four-footed and two-footed back and forth, had um, the muzzle and head of a German shepherd, and usually uh, dark brown fur was what they were seeing at the time. And when I looked at the people who were calling in, I thought, well, this isn't just a couple of teenage hoaxers. You know, there were farmers, there were um, factory workers, there were professionals, there were men, women, young, old, and steadily growing. And I thought, well, there's got to be something to this. Even there... Either there's a really fantastic hoaxer out there, you know, and all these people are getting fooled, but it didn't seem that way because um, a lot of the sightings were happening at odd times and in odd places near Bray Road, but not on it, where, uh, you know, if you were a hoaxer, you're going to go to the place where the most people are going to see you. So um, I started investigating, and when I interviewed these people, they seemed sincere to me. They didn't seem like they were making anything up. Um, you know, I took it to the editor and we felt that since there was uh, a, a county official with a file folder marked werewolf, that it was news regardless. And so we ran it. The, it was the um, New Year's weekend of 1991-92. And we thought there would be some fun. You know, people would kind of chuckle about it and then it would just sort of be one of those forgotten stories. And we couldn't have been further from the truth because within two weeks, See, it couldn't go viral then because there was no internet, not like we know it today. But it went, it went uh, countrywide, you know, through Associated Press within two weeks. And so we had all the Madison TV stations there and the Milwaukee TV stations and uh, coming up from Chicago. And people started calling me for uh, radio shows. And it went on and on. And what I found was that the more this news, news spread, the more people there were not just in Elkhorn on Bray Road, but across the country. And even I had one from the Virgin Islands saying, hey, this is just exactly what I saw. Or I know somebody who saw this thing. And I realized it was a very widespread phenomenon, not like one little puny local monster. And I started keeping track of them because I was the one receiving the, um, the reports. And they just never stopped. I, I kept working for the newspaper for 10 years and just reporting on regular run-of-the-mill stuff. Maybe I did four update columns in that 10-year in that period, if anything. But I felt like I ought to put it in a book so everybody had what happened, you know, and could refer to the facts and it would, um, you know, get all out of proportion. And I thought that would be the end of it. So The Beast of Bray Road came out. It was called The Beast of Bray Road, Tailing Wisconsin's Werewolf. It's now in its second edition and still really going pretty strong. Um, but that one 
brought in so many more reports. And then that one brought more. It was just like a snowball rolling downhill. You know, it just kept gathering as it went. And so now 26 years and I'm about to have, I think, I think it's my 19th book um, published. Not all on that stuff. You know, there, there were, as you said, um, I, I was the author of the Michigan um, Weird Book and co-authored the Wisconsin one. And there were some others in there too. I did, I did a book on sea, lake and sea monsters. Okay. And, and mythic creatures, and there, so there have been all these other ones in there too. But um, the last, the last three have been for Penguin, um, Penguin Random House Publishers, and I've got a fourth one coming out with them, God willing. It's been in uh, post production for a while. Um, large, large companies are great, but they have a lot of things, you know, places to, to put the book through its paces. So um, that should be coming out um, hopefully within several months. So the the idea that these uh, you know dogmen or wolfmen are connected to the supernatural is you know a lot different than a lot what a lot of people think when they think of cryptids in general. There seems to be kind of an automatic oppressive feeling. I've heard this time and time again. Um, we just got off the phone with a anonymous witness out of Montana that goes by the name of Robin. She would talk about there being this almost, you know, oppressive, demonic presence that came over the property. Is this something that witnesses describe before a sighting? Um, not usually before. And mostly it's when you've got one where there is a property and the thing is appearing again and again. And it's almost what, what they call a habituation uh-huh. situation. And um, then in that case, many people will report. But a lot of the reports are just one-offs where they're driving down the road. And all of a sudden they see this thing and it sometimes dashes across the road in front of them, uh, almost like forcing them to watch it and, and goes into cover. Sometimes it'll run alongside the car um, and keep up with it for, for a certain amount of time. Um, sometimes they're hiking or in the woods and they come face to face with it and they think that it's just about to eat them and then it dashes off. So, uh, but they often feel, even though, um, it's standing on its hind legs and running on its hind legs, which is not a supernatural act. Um, any mammal can do that if it's trained or motivated. But they'll say, you know, I felt like it made eye contact with me and that it was um, a little bit more aware of me as a person or a, an interesting, curious thing than you'd expect a normal animal to um, pay, pay any sort of attention to. Um, for instance, uh, one woman saw this saw one pop up out of the ditch, um, right and jump right toward her car as she was driving, um, just at dawn toward her medical job. She was a very responsible um, medical um, medical professional, and she said she felt it was only a few seconds that she saw this thing. It was terrified by it, by it, but she said in that time it somehow communicated to her that if she told anyone it would come and get her, was how she put it. And she was so freaked out. She didn't even tell her husband for like three days. And then he was the one that called me. And when I went to interview her and and visit the place and everything, she got so upset. She was just in tears crying to have to tell it again. So it can have that effect on people, whether it's been hanging around their house or not. And she was terrified that it somehow could follow her and uh, just... She, who knows what she didn't know what it would do to her if it did right so 
is do you have a number two, Linda, that people can call you and uh, have you come out to their property? Are you an active investigator for people that have sightings even as far as, say, Oregon? I mean, is that something you do? Well, I have to stick to the ones that aren't too far for me to travel because honestly, um, being a cryptid investigator is not a high paying job. Anybody who wants to get into this for the money should really stop and find a, a better thing to do. Um, we have no idea what you mean. <laughs> we have no clue. Uh, <laughs> We're eating well, crackers here right now. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I think I looked it up and like two years ago, um, a Walmart greeter made four times what I made from, you know, my books and whatever in one year. So it gives you some sort of idea. So I, I lack the means to go traipsing off to Oregon, although I would love to, but um, I do go out to wherever I can. And that right. keeps me pretty busy. And um, yeah, it's, it's much, it's, it's interesting. The other thing is it has to be fairly recent, you know, because a lot of the calls I get and reports and don't right. worry out. I'll answer your question about the number in a minute. A lot of the reports are people who've been sitting on these things for like 15, 20 years sometimes because they always thought they were the only one who ever saw it. They didn't want people to think they were crazy. Um, you know, sometimes they were just in denial that, no, I didn't see it. It didn't happen. And then they would see me on TV or one of the shows, you know, that had other witnesses or find my blog on the internet and say, hey, I'm not the only one. I get this so much from people. They're, they're like, I'm just so glad to talk to somebody who doesn't think I'm crazy. You know, that's that's the big thing. And so I don't have a phone number because, you know, I have a phone. I'm not, um, I have um, other obligations too, but I do have um, a place on my blog. If you just go to lindagodfrey.com and there are no W's, G-O-D-F-R-E-Y you'll see there's an about page and there's a form you can fill out and write me through that. And it also has my email there too. Okay. So if people want to get a hold of you, they go to lindagodfrey.com without the W's and you have a, you have a blog there and you, you, you must get questions all the time. Is this a, a burgeoning phenomena that has seemed to have an ebb and flow to it? Or are we on the, the heightened end of dogman encounters? Where are we at as far as reports? Well, um, I think that there, there are more reports these days because there are more people who put their name out there and somebody that can be called, you know, and, and that's fine with me because I couldn't possibly handle all the ones that there are in this world. You know, there are sure. there's just more, more to it than, than one person could do. So that's great. Um, and I do think that there are more reports now, partly because um, there are some more people for a long time. I mean, it's really only like the last three or four years that it's kind of exploded on the internet. Before that, most investigators really didn't want anything to do with it because um, I think some people felt it would downgrade the Bigfoot as a phenomenon, but I think they just reinforce each other. So um, the, the other thing is that people have learned, others have seen it, and so they're not so afraid of coming forward themselves. They're more willing to tell what happened to them some years ago. And now also, if you do have a sighting, uh, people will tell me that they um, they had the sighting, they didn't know what it was, they went straight to the internet, which is what everybody does nowadays, and Googled it and found me. And before that, it would take people quite a while sometimes to find, figure out who they could call, if, if anyone. So I think all those things are contributing factors to um, the truth that they're a little more high profile than they used to be. 
What what state, Linda, would you say is the hot state right now in the United States for sightings? Well, well, there are several, you know, and it's it's kind of and it's, again, this is just sightings that are reported, you know, because I know there are lots that never do get reported, no matter what. But um, some of the hot ones tend to be clustered around the Great Lakes, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Pennsylvania are all very, very hot topics. I'm starting to get more from like the, uh, the West Coast states. Um, for a long time, I noticed that most of the sightings seem to be east of the Mississippi with spurs down to like through Georgia and Florida and then another spur down into Texas. And now the word is starting to get out in California. The California ones all have a little bit more uh, like a, an offbeat um, quality to them for some reason. It isn't usually just the, you know, the, the chase the car, um, look, look the, the witness in the eye and run off. It's, there's often something just a little bit um, strange about them. You're saying California has more supernatural encounters with dogmen? It seems that way. Okay. Yeah. And my, my last book, Monsters Among Us, was devoted to exploring that weird range that I often hadn't really known where to put them before, you know, or that I might have. Uh, until it sort of reached critical mass with these things, I didn't really know how to handle them. I didn't know if I should be telling all these sort of straightforward stories. And then the one where a man sees a, a dog man glowing blue all over his fur. And this is a very highly credible person. His wife saw it too, the middle-aged people. Um, you know, it, it's hard to refute. There, there's a whole story that goes to that. But so um, the last book, Monsters Among Us, goes through stories of, of that vein, um, you know, transformational ones and things that I really haven't talked a lot about before. And that book also, uh, you know, I've had the idea that maybe even though these are all very strange sounding to us, that they have some sort of association. And in, toward that end, wherever there was um, an encounter where we had a pretty close date and uh, knew where it was, then you can go to the internet these days just so easily and see if there was a solar flare, see what the phase of the moon was, find out if there were UFOs in the area, you know, and then see if there were any correlations. And um, even though this wasn't a very big, uh, you know, number of things statistically, one book, I think it set up a pretty good uh, format that someone could follow. And I did notice that at least in the ones that I had, solar flares were far more, um, more often linked than were phases of the moon, full moons. And with the moons, with, with the moon phase, it was mostly like the three quarters moon rather than the full moon. It was okay. So three quarter moon, more sightings? Yeah, at least for okay. the, all the different ones I had in this book. And these covered, you know, Canada, and there were some from um, South America and, and both uh, sides of the US and all over. So it wasn't, um, it, it was a wide sampling. Hmm. How, how far does this all go back as far as your research in the in the Great Lakes area? If those are, that seems to be where a lot of the hotbed action is coming up from, the land of the lakes. Has it always been that way as far as back to the oral written record? Um, well, by oral written record, you mean like early newspaper reports? Well, with the Native Americans, have they, I mean, obviously they're using words like skinwalker, but do they have other names? Yeah, they do. A lot of tribes have, have their own names in their own language. 
-hmm. but um, the ones that I've talked to are have all been aware of both Bigfoot and um, the dog man, if you want to call it that. Although it really looks more like a wolf than a dog, I think. So I, I use dog man, man wolf, wolf man, kind of interchangeably. Because yeah, I like wolf man better. Yeah, wolf man's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, but whatever, whatever, they have their own name, and they usually tell me something along the lines of these things were here before people. They came from the spirit world. Um, they, the spirit world is entered and departed from through fresh uh, springs, yeah, know, like like rivers or you know spring-fed lakes, and then when they want to, they can go back. When they're here, they're mostly corporeal. They can eat, drink, you know, leave footprints, um, mate, all that kind of thing. But it appears that there's some sort of a sliding scale that's between fully embodied here on Earth and fully in the spirit world, and somewhere in between. Um, they can be partly transparent. They can um, do things like influence people, maybe through their um, electromagnetic field, that sort of thing. No, nobody, everybody's looking at these same few sorts of characteristics, and there's a lot of disagreement. But there, it does seem to be an overall agreement that they can have this sort of uncanny effect on people. That we really maybe some people think it's maybe. Um, infrasound, you know, real right. low sound waves, that right. sort of thing. And then they can be back in the spirit world when they want to, and that's why you don't find dead bodies. And I have to say that this paradigm really fits all the witness reports the best. It's the one that covers everything and fits it, and um, that's why I've always kind of referred to it and keep it in mind. What kind of personal encounters have you had? Well, it took a while. Um, I think it was, I might have seen the upright back of, or spine probably is a better word, of dog man when I was um, there with a History Channel cameraman and we were in this way far out place looking at a place where some three witnesses had seen this thing. Um, it was the wee hours of the morning. It was like 90 degrees even at that time. It was getting ready to storm. And everybody was kind of nervous because we were hearing rattlings in the bushes and seeing eyes in the bushes. And there was a motion detector that kept going off. And all of a sudden, something ran across the road. Of course, the cameraman had, had uh, his camera turned the opposite direction, but there was a, a floodlight that we had lighting up the road. And it ran across. And all I could see was the spine of something. It was an upright spine. It was covered with gray fur. And gray was the color of fur that the witnesses had seen out there and it blotted out momentarily as it went past a road sign blotted out this road sign and just kept going and when we measured the road sign it would have had to have been seven feet tall in order to have blotted that out so now i can't say for sure that this wasn't a human in a suit but man i can't imagine being in that kind of heat and as humid as it was and in, in a fursuit if you've ever tried on one of those costumes um, you know, that would be the only other possibility is if some, some person had found out that we were going to be in this remote location and decided to spoof us for hours and hours and hours at night. Right. I find, I find kind of unlikely. Um, that was probably in around 2007 or eight or so. And it took until it was 2012 when I started having some incidents with Bigfoot. And I actually have seen 
what I think was a big, I think was the same one, um, three times in kind of a uh, related area in um, 2012. And I had, I had a big um, encounter before that. I call it the, the Bigfoot Branch Theory. And if you go to, if you go to my web, uh, my web blog, lindagodfrey.com, and go to the search box and type Bigfoot Branch, it'll show you photos. It'll tell the whole story of how I saw um, what turned out to be a 35 foot long, brand new, fresh oak, oak wood. There's nothing rotten about it. Eight inch diameter branch that was first twisted and then thrown down. In, there were two sharp cracks, the crack where it was twisted, the crack where it was thrown down uh, 40 feet into the bottom of, of a kettle in the Kettle Marine State Forest. And I was not very far from it. It was, but the whole, the whole story is in there. That one I couldn't see. Um, the other ones I did see. It was too, this, that one was too um, hidden by dense foliage because this was a, very, a mature, um, very, very lush tree. It was not, there's nothing rotten on it ready to fall off. And it was not in a place where people would be, you know, or anyone would have a reason to cut this branch down. And there was more to that. I, I immediately left the vicinity as soon as that happened and went and got a couple of friends and we went back there within half an hour. We didn't, we didn't see anything. So we kind of cautiously went down there and measured the tree and looked to see there were no woodpecker things, but we did um, what, the one that didn't go down in the kettle and stayed as a guard up on the ridge screamed because she saw it. And this was a 20 year old young woman, my friend's daughter, who didn't know anything about Bigfoot. I never thought about Bigfoot, but she described it to a T. She didn't know there was such a thing as what is called a blonde Bigfoot. This was like a, um, a silver and beige uh, fur, furred creature. It ran, right. it ran out of sight into the, the bushes in the next kettle by the time we got there, but then it growled at us. And this growl was like something we've never heard. It just shakes your entire body. Like you feel all your electrons are vibrating. The hair went up on the back, backs of our necks and we could smell it too. It was, you know, I could smell it to this day. And, uh, and I had some wood that was evidently pushed off the, the, squeezed off the branch where it took hold of it. Because imagine the torque and the pressure it would take to break a fresh oak limb off of a tree like that. Sure. And I, I, have, I still have that, but that smelled for a good year, you know, so the scent was, was still on there. And um, that's pretty convincing when you have an eyewitness, you know, to a big action, an eyewitness to the creature itself, three people witnessing the smell and hearing it, you know, that it, it's hard to refute that in my own mind. So what kind of vocals do dogmen usually make? I mean, are we talking about a, you know, canine noise? Do they have language? Um, you know, I don't know if dogmen are believed to have language the same way that Bigfoot is. Mm -hmm. you know, and I think there's a little better case for Bigfoot having a language because they're just so much more human-like, you know, when you have to have that hyoid, I think I'm pronouncing it right, um, bone that's in the throat that is capable of uh, making the language. Uh, with canines, they're just different, but I do have consistent reports of people who have met up with one like face-to-face -face, and it stopped and was giving them sort of a territorial, you know, back off man sort of thing. And they said it would, it would growl. And this is by people, this wasn't published at the time, different people telling me this, trying to imitate it. And they would say it was a, a very variably pitched 
uh, sound that ranged from like a real deep growl to higher. And it reminded everybody of, remember those uh, cappuccino makers that were in style a while ago? Like that. That's what they all described. It was this weirdly pitched thing. Yeah. And um, up and down like that. And really, it's, it's kind of strange. You would expect to hear, have them say it howled, but of course, Usually the wolves don't howl when, natural wolves don't howl when they're sitting right in front of the prey. That's when they're snarling and trying to intimidate it. But I have had people say, you know, that at the time, if they were living near some woods, they would hear howls in the woods or hear the sounds of what sounded like something getting killed or dismembered or whatever. Do they seem, uh, do they seem to have a sense of humor at all, Linda, like Sasquatch does? Are they, no. You know, <laughs> no. They don't, they, you know, you're right. Sasquatch does, you know, play little puzzles and tricks and games. These things, at least to my reports, now there are some people who may disagree. Maybe they've had a habituation situation. I know a few people who really think that they've got a good side, but they don't seem to like to show it. You know, it's entirely possible that they do, but what they're usually displaying to my mind seems like aggression territory protection. You know, like maybe this is their hunting grounds because they're fighting for deer. All the top predators, at least in you know uh, Canada and uh, uh, the Americas, want deer, and so do um, mountain lions and bears. If they can right. eat a bears eat a lot of, of other stuff too. But um, the big the Bigfoot and the Dogman are both very often seen running after deer as fast as they can go, or um, sometimes holding, walking along, carrying a haunch, you know, over their shoulder that kind of thing. And so every, everybody um, wants the deer and I think that they probably um, each have their own territory. I say that from have my habit of mapping things out, you know, where they'll, they'll be sharing a general large area, but within that, I can tell you, there's mostly Bigfoot on one side of this uh, line, whatever it is, right. dogmen on the other. So they seem to have this worked out. Neither one of them likes to have human beings messing around in their hunting or feeding grounds. I want to open the floor here. If anybody has any questions, I don't. I have tons of questions here. Anybody have any questions for Linda Godfrey? This might be the only chance you have for crying out loud, Linda. What about forest lights, orbs? Oh wait, we. Well, I'll get right to you. What um, What about lights and orbs in the forest in association with these? Well, those are sometimes um, reported. I've had a personal experience with this. Uh -huh. Not a big woods. It was a farm, a farmland um, field, and uh, a tree line where a lot of weird stuff has happened. And this, is, I'll try and make it just general because um, Monsters Among Us has a very detailed report on this. But I've been working, literally doing field work in a hay field with um, a gentleman who was a retired math and physics professor from Chicago who bought some land by right at the end of Bray Road um, to feed his horses that he had in Illinois. And he started noticing that there were raccoons and badgers with weird mutilations. They looked like something had just zipped them open, scooped cleanly all the insides out, and then taken the insides, leaving the little fursuits lying there, like, you know, a, a, an empty stuffed toy or something, one, one stuffed toy. And so he started putting out deer and things like that. And then light, really odd light formations and um, anomalies started showing up. And... Um, Usually they would be centered around wherever he had a deer carcass laid out, which he started um, experimenting. I'd go out and kind of advise him, I'd help, try That's and help him figure out where to put them. Yeah, um, 
it started with a 60 pounder and he had, he was on like somewhere in 15th or 16th deer and he had 180 pounder out there. I think it was about two years ago in, in August. And um, nothing was touching this deer. And normally, even if it was one where there weren't like phenomena, you'd see all, you'd see turkey vultures and there'd be thugs and, you know, all the, all the things that go up and feed on, on carcasses. For some reason, nothing was touching this beautiful um, 180 pound carcass that really, it, it wasn't far rotted or anything like that. And I said, well, you know, let's do, let's do a nighttime stakeout and see if we can, if maybe there's something bigger chasing away these other guys. And so um, we had a, my colleague, Sanjay and Lee, that's the owner of the farm and I, um, sat out in um, Sanjay's car. We sat on the other side of the field so that we wouldn't bother whatever was coming over there and had cameras and had things set up, um, cam trail cams set up on both sides. Well, we're watching and there were other lights. There were planes coming in on um, a flight path a little ways away that went over the, tr the tree line. And I looked all of a sudden at one of them because it had stopped in mid-flight over the, the tree line. And as I watched it, it slowly backed up. And not just a little twinkling. I mean, this backed up and it was a fairly good sized light. And I said, guys, I don't think that one's an airplane. And so they looked and when all three of us, and I think this is important, when all three of us had placed our attention on it, it immediately, it was like it homed in on us and it began to proceed straight across the field toward us. It wasn't meandering. It wasn't like a little swamp light that flickered on and off. This was something that looked solid to us and it was coming across the field directly to the car. And so we're all like, what? What is that thing? You know, we're trying to figure it out. I'm getting my camera up to my to my face so I, I can take and trying to get in a position because these two big guys, they're both like six foot two in the front seat. Right. So I could barely see, oh, and that's the direction it was coming at, at us from, so I could barely see it. So this thing gets to within 30 feet of the car, it was about 30 feet up and 30 feet away from us. And it was, we estimated the size of a basketball and it was spheroid, it was lighted, um, sort of seemingly from the inside, it wasn't like lighting up the place. It was like self-contained light, which is um, not a normal thing, you know, and I'm just getting, we're just trying to express ourselves, you know, and, and leave the, the physics and math teachers going, that's not right. That, you know, what, what is that? And just as I was about to take my picture, Sanjay had this impulse to shine the flashlight at it. And he did that. And it just kind of, we all agreed it was a word like jittered. It wasn't exactly, I mean, this thing was not behaving in normal ways that you could describe. It was not an everyday thing. And then all of a sudden it just sort of imploded in on itself, which again is, is a hard thing to describe. Right. And it was gone. And then we all yelled, you know, our, our favorite words. And, and uh, Lee, again, the prior <laughs> physics teacher is like, that's not right. That can't happen. There can't be such a thing. That's not what physics does, you know. And so we were we were all just completely uh, yeah. amazed at it. And then Sanjay felt like he should get out of the car. And he did. He walked around behind some trees. He just wanted to make sure it wasn't there. And he came back in about two seconds and said, I feel sick. I'm really, really sick. We have to go right now. And he was driving, so we did. Otherwise, I don't know. He might have saved us from abduction. Who knows? Who knows yeah. what might have happened? Yeah, because it evidently... But we all felt it was conscious. We felt that it was surprised when yeah. light hit it. We felt that it was maybe considering what to do about us, you know, that we had spotted it. We didn't know. Yeah.
it was it was very disconcerting. All right, and after that, unfortunately, the mic volume cut off. Uh, it just wasn't up to snuff to put together and edit up on a podcast here. We're trying to keep this as quality as possible, and that just didn't make the cut. So I will tell you that when another witness came up on stage, his name's Sean Fay, and got a quick interview uh, by Linda Godfrey virtually over the big screen in full werewolf costume makeup. Mind you, Sean Fay uh, reveal his dogman incident in Silverton, Oregon. So I will get a, another interview, a better quality interview with uh, my good friend Sean Fay. All right, as always, check out our fantastic sponsor, Feral by Aaron at Etsy.com, F-E-R-A-L by B-Y-E-R-Y-N at Etsy, Feral by Aaron, Etsy.com for all your spirit drum tools and smudge fan. Great stuff. All right, we'll be back next week with some amazing guests, but if you'd like to be a guest or have an idea, send us an email at strangebrowbrau at gmail.com. All right, folks, that's it for me. We'll see you in the trees.